Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 304 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is January 20th, 2014. Happy Martin Luther King Day to everyone out there in podcast land. We've got a big show on the podcast. We've got Dan Weber, Harvey Hyde talking some USC football, even some USC basketball a little bit later. If you have any questions or comments, send them in. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. Or you can leave a voicemail at 206-888-6755 or go to peristylepodcast.com. Leave a voicemail right on our webpage. You can see all the archive shows on our webpage too. What's been going on in podcast land over the last five or six years, however long it's been going. I think it's almost six years now. Holy cow. Uh, 304 episodes. So uh, a lot going on there. And we have Coach Harvey Hyde right now. What's going on, Coach? How are you doing? Well, I'll tell you what, Ryan, I want to thank you guys for allowing me to go on secret assignment again last week. I was out there trying to dig up some stuff for all of us, and I came up with nothing. So, (laughs) no treasures, nothing to talk about except I was in Vegas. I'll just tell everybody, not Catalina. I was in Vegas uh, taking care of a few obligations I have up there, and I really did miss the podcast. So today, anything we have to make up for last week, I'm willing to do it. Put me in. I'm ready to play, Coach. All right. Well, we were hoping the whole show was going to be about everything you dug up, Coach, in Las Vegas. But uh, okay, I don't know okay. what we're going to do. <laughs> That's right. Right. Well, I was watching you. I was watching you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Southern California Tickets. We want to thank them for being our sponsor. SCTickets.com. You can call them at one eight hundred eight 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 seven two eight seven. If you need tickets for any kind of sporting event, Clippers are doing pretty well. Lakers, not so much. Concerts. If you want to go to the theater or anything like that, SCTickets.com can. Help you out. Let us know if the if you got your national championship tickets or Rose Bowl tickets from them or any one of the, the BCS Bowls. I know some people wrote in and said they did, so thanks for doing that. And, uh, Coach, you didn't need – I don't know. Did you uh, – You actually, you went to the national championship game with a ticket and not – you could have been in the media. You're like, no, I just want to sit in the stands. You're exactly right. I had a credential, but I called them and said, you know, uh, there's other people that come from out of state and so on that could utilize this credential – and it'd be a big thing for them to be able to sit in the press box for this game. I, I, I've been doing before. Last year I went down to the Orange Bowl, sat in the stands. I like being with the people, had good tickets, uh, you know, had a good pregame uh, tailgate with a lot of people I know, commissioners and other people. And, and I, you know, this is where I dig up a lot of my thoughts and information, where I form my opinions on things. And uh, when you sit in the stands, I'll tell you one thing, Ryan. It's the first game I've ever gone to the Rose Bowl for a BCS championship game or a Rose Bowl game where you stood up the entire game. Now, I don't know if you noticed that or not from the press box. I stood up the entire game. Now, great seats. The only time I sat down was during TV timeouts. Otherwise, I stood up. Did you notice that? I, well, I was on the, the sidelines, so I was taking pictures and stuff. And, yeah, it, it seemed like – it, I think it might have depended on which section, but it seemed like especially the Auburn section 
they were standing up and you know they were more excited i guess for, than the the fred the uh, fresno state excuse me the florida state people um because you know they were winning most of the game then you know florida state made that great comeback at the end but certainly one of the most exciting games but yeah that you don't usually see that at the rose bowl where people are standing up all over the place the entire game it really was a great game no one left till the final seconds which meant it was hard to get out of the stadium <laughs> but but it was a great game worth every penny of it had uh, had an opportunity to see a lot of people a lot of celebrities were there at this game it was an event not just a game, because, Ryan, this is the final championship game that may ever be played in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, national championship game. Now, next year they host a semifinal game. It's not the regular Rose Bowl game then, and they're going to consider it a Rose Bowl game. Richard Chin in the new Tournament of Roses president said, I'm calling it the 101st Tournament of Rose Bowl game. But it's a semifinal game, which means it could be two teams from anywhere. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a lot different because the next three games are in Arlington. They're in, uh, I think, uh, Orlando. And they're in Phoenix. So this could be the last game unless the Pasadena community or L.A. community goes out and actually bids on this game. So I think that's sad because when you watch the celebration after the game, you saw the excitement of the teams, or team, let's say, but part of it was playing in the Rose Bowl, winning a national championship in in the Rose Bowl, where they've all dreamed about coming. You saw the players with roses in their mouths. You saw the players with roses in their ears and their hats. You know, that was part of the experience in playing in such a historical uh, you know, arena such as the Rose Bowl. So it's sort of sad as far as the players are concerned. And, again, it all comes down to bidding and who's going to give the most money and what are you going to give up. So right now it might not even be played again in the Sugar Bowl or Orange Bowl or Rose Bowl, which I think is sort of sad. Yeah, I mean, we're losing some of these traditions. And I, I know the Rose Bowl was losing it every four years or so. And, you know, not, it, obviously that's going to change going forward with the playoff. But do you think it's worth it having at least a four-team playoff for now? And who knows if they're going to expand that uh, in the future, uh, having a, a playoff picture and, and these BCS Bowls involved? Well, myself, I know everyone out there, including all the media people that are listening, they want a playoff. They want a four-team, six-team, eight-team, 12-team, 16-team, whatever. If you talk to most coaches, I'm not saying all coaches, most coaches, they all feel like, what was wrong with the BCS playoff? For 16 years, it, it worked. People, they rotated the games around. Uh, there was a national champion. Everyone talked about, oh, no, this isn't right. This team shouldn't have been in there. The other team should have been in there. All the talk about college football and a nice, nice payout. Now, obviously, the payout's going to be more, so that's what the direction they went. Boom, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, but most coaches, if you, if you read the – and you were probably at the post-game interview when uh, Coach Fisher said, you know, I like what we've done. I like playing here. All the football fans want a playoff like which we're going to, which I'm not a fan. I'm a coach, but I'll go along with it. Now, read into that. What is he saying? To me, I, I mean, he liked the system the way it was, and he didn't want to change. You're exactly right. And if you talk to most coaches, that's how they feel. Because 
if I'm a Pac-12 coach, head coach, when I get my team together in the spring, and when I get my team together in the fall, I say, guys, if we win the Pac-12 championship, we're going to Pasadena. We're going to the Rose Bowl. I mean, that means something. When I recruit, I say, if you come to my university and we win the Pac-12, we're playing in the Rose Bowl January 1st. If I'm in the Big Ten and I go to Iowa, when I start practice, if we win, we're going to the Rose Bowl. You know what they say now? I don't know where we're going. (laughs) Good point. So, you know, there's a lot of tradition and a lot of this regarding football teams and getting ready for a season and your off season and your opening game and where you might end up. So, you know, you know, I look at it that way. Now for the media and and all of that, just like the media's made all this big to do about Sherman's interview with Aaron Anders after the game and you know, all of this type of stuff, how bad it was. Hey, you know, there's a passion in a player. As a coach, I teach these kids to be gladiators. That's why I think there should be a moment where they can calm down and become their regular selves again. You know, he was just telling, you know, we don't know the trash talk that's going on on the field. We don't know all the trash talk when these guys get together during the off season. And he was expressing himself that they had just won the football game on a play that he helped on. He was excited. But the media, every every station I listen to, every TV show I listen to, it's a conversation like, oh, my gosh, he should be fine. I was in a coffee shop this morning. I had to get up and leave. This table was talking about what a bad kid this is and and how, how he could do that on TV. What do you mean, how could he do that on TV? They're going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> and he made a big play. And he was excited. If you saw the post-game interviews, what a gentleman. I mean, you know, please, give these kids a break. No, I agree with you, Coach. And one of, one of the, the things on uh, the playoff, and I'm, I'm definitely for I wanted to see a playoff and things like that, but I, I've been talking about this with some, uh, some other college football fans and some of the people that, you know, aren't really into the playoff thing. And, and I guess one of the aspects is we've seen a trend in football games, not just college but nfl of attendance and not being as you know the attendance is not going through the roof it's going down it's going the other direction even in the sec where football is life and football is a religion you're having a hard time selling out some of these games i mean it's a lot easier for for someone to sit on their couch and watch and on a 70 inch screen on hd and where you're talking about a playoff now we got a lot of florida state fans and a lot of auburn fans came out for this like you know once in a lifetime sort of opportunity but if they had to come out to the Rose Bowl for the the semifinal game and then maybe had to go you know somewhere else to New Orleans or or Arizona or something for the the championship game I think it's you know not knowing and you have to turn around and do that in a week that's something that's going to be a difficult task for people to do how are you going to be able to get enough fans to go to both games and then if you're talking about expanding then you'd have three games in three weeks where fans would have to kind of pick up their lives and and go on a last minute, you know, plane ticket somewhere. I, I think there's some difficulties as far as filling the stands. Uh, you know, the TV money will be there, but to try to fill the stands for these playoff games, I think, could be a significant challenge. You're 100% on. 
Now, Ryan, I don't know if you know this or not. The BCS game tickets in, in Pasadena and the Rose Bowl were light. People were selling them below face value. Uh, and you, here you have a national championship game in Pasadena and the Rose Bowl, and ticket prices were so high, and people said, to heck with it, I'll watch it on TV. I don't know if you noticed what the prices were. The face value were 385 a piece within the uh, 30s, and then after that it was 325 Well, you take a family of six, and then you park, then you eat, and you do this and that. Then you go to the parade, then you have a hotel room you have to stay in, then you have your airplane ticket. That's if you're coming from somewhere else. Hey, that adds up. So uh, they, they, they say they sold it out. Yes, they probably sold it out because people bought the tickets and then hoped to sell them again through brokers. But I'm telling you, brokers were selling the tickets for $250, $300 game day. So, it, you know, and you're just talking about it starting. Now, let's really look at it. Next year in the Rose Bowl, they have a semifinal game, which means who knows, like I said earlier, who the teams are going to be. And you just mentioned about can they afford to come here and then go on to the next game. Well, people are more concerned on following the winning team and where they're going to be next week. That's where they want to go. Now, you have a parade in Pasadena. So now that's going to affect the parade in Pasadena. Because normally when the teams come to the Rose Bowl, they do the whole package. They go in the morning to the parade, then they go down to the uh, Rose Bowl for the game. And a lot of people come in early, and they go to Catalina, and they go to Vegas, and they go to all these different places and and make a tour of Hollywood and all all of the above. These people, now these teams will be coming here just to play and get out. So are they going to have all of the Lori's Beef Bowls? Are they going to have the Disneyland? Are they going to do all these things? I'm I'm not sure if they will or want to because they've got to prepare for a game that if they lose, they're out. They're trying to win this to go to another game. So not only does it affect the teams and the tenants, it 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 affects the economy, uh, the hotels, the parade seats, the uh, sponsors of the parade, the floats. The uh, restaurants, it affects everything. But the TV revenues make up for all of that, Ryan, and they don't care about the loyalty of the bowl games, the bowls that have kept the NCAA in business for all these years. They've just said, well, we're going a different way now because we can make more money through TV revenue. And basically that's what it is. You've got to remember that you're only as good as your last game. The loyalty doesn't last. And it starts at the top with the college presidents and everything else. Money has now influenced everything in college athletics. Yeah, and I, I remember uh, I had uh, some friends that were big uh, Michigan State fans and their alumni that live out here, and uh, they're asking me, do you have any ticket hooks up, hookups? And I, you know, I, I think I emailed you or something, and you're like, really, it's next to impossible to get tickets. And it was at the time. If you looked online, this was, you know, several weeks out before the game. Uh, it was really hard to get them. But then I think as the game got closer, like you said, there were tickets going way under face value. And uh, I, I don't know what, you know, what what happened. What you know, what it's gone it got that game time got closer. People didn't want to go, but. It seemed like it was going to be an impossible ticket to get, at least for the Rose Bowl. I didn't see as much on the national championship. But then, as the game got closer, it was a lot easier. Right. Now, the BCS game is the one that tickets were available. The Rose Bowl was a tough ticket run. You still, it, it really still was? was. I See, I heard at the end that, that it was easier to get them. No. 
Oh, not okay. that I know of. Not that I knew of. That, that was a tough ticket. People really couldn't get a ticket. That was a tough ticket. Oh, okay. I mean, if, if you'd have told somebody you had two tickets to the Rose Bowl game, they'd have said, uh, well, how much do you want for them? They wouldn't have said, what's the face price? <laughs> okay. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we got, we got to talk about that. I wanted to uh, – we had a question about – uh, the USC coaching staff, and, the, and uh, we're going to talk with Dan Weber about it, too, a little bit later. But there's been some drama uh, in an attempt to hire a USC defensive line coach. Everyone thought it was going to be Tosh Lapoy, who was at Washington with Steve Sarkeesian. And uh, he uh, there were some NCAA uh, violation allegations, so that, that fell through. He wasn't able to. They actually announced uh, Bo Davis, who was a defensive tackle at defensive tackle coach at the University of Texas, and then he changed his mind after six days and ended up going to Alabama, Nick Saban, who he'd coached with for years and years. So it, it, that wasn't too big of a shock that he would go back to kind of his roots as a coach. But we had this question coming in from uh, J.D. in D.C. It's a little long, but uh, just bear with me, Coach. He said, Coach Hyde, please don't duck this question. You have special insight into this area. The Bo Davis debacle to me reveals, one, he behaved unethically, and two, USC was either inept or in or in desperation in hiring him. One, he says, USC was inept. How is it possible that he, SC signed a contract with this guy and he doesn't have to pay a financial penalty or buyout if he didn't fill his, to fulfill his commitments? Uh, you didn't see Washington State be that stupid with their coaches. Do you? SC was tied in knots hiring Wilcox for months uh, trying to get him out of Washington. And then two, he said, Davis is unethical. How can he conduct himself? At, and be considered anything less than honorable. He left uh, in the middle of the first team meeting when you get a call from Saban. You don't leave your first team meeting unless you're someone is sick or dying or you're expecting the call. You know Nick Saban is offering you a job and you've been discussing with him for several days and then you knew you'd take the Alabama job if offered. Obviously, he knew it was a real possibility. And if he was in negotiations with Alabama, even as he was inking the USC contract and had decided ahead of time to hose USC if the Alabama job was offered. Thus, he clearly took the USC job under false pretenses. And thirdly, and finally, USC is desperate. Uh, Unless USC was part of those negotiations that he could walk away for the Alabama job when it was offered. In which case, why was USC hiring him knowing there was a good chance he was a short-timer? Are we that desperate inept these days. Wow, so long one there. J.D. Uh, from D.C. wanted to get your thoughts on USC and the Bo Davis uh, issues there. Nice questions. <laughs> and uh, No, really, and uh, obviously uh, there's a lot of thought put into this question, and I'm not going to duck it. I'm going to tell you the truth. First of all, when a coach thinks about replacing Ed Ordron before he even considers the USC job, first of all, he's really excited about taking the job, and he says, well, I'm replacing a legend. So that's the first thing that enters your mind. Secondly, uh, where a pl- coach is coming from, and if he hasn't lived in Southern California and he's coming from another area and is not familiar with the coaches or familiar with the area or the freeways or the expenses of living in Southern California, that's sort of scary. Uh, second, uh, thirdly, uh, obviously I believe he had, a, he had knowledge that there was a, be a possibility that the Alabama defensive line job would be open and that if uh, offered that job, he would accept it, but he wasn't sure he would be offered that job. So what he did is he took the USC job thinking that, well, 
and I believe this, that if I'm offered the Alabama job, I'm leaving. Now, you you have to give uh, him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt here. He may have told Coach Sarkeesian that, hey, uh, I'm up for the Alabama job. I'm going to take the USC job, and if I get it, I'd like to be released to go to Alabama. That's my first choice. You understand why. I'm from the Southeastern Conference. I'm, I'm very familiar with Coach Nick Saban. I've coached with him before. Would you allow me to do that? And maybe Coach Sarkeesian said, yes, I will. I will release you, and you can go. So maybe the timing was bad on that. And, again, if you're Coach Sarkeesian, you don't want a coach on your staff who doesn't want to be there. Like hold him to the contract and say, no, I'm not going to release you, because now you have a disgruntled coach and a guy you don't really want on your staff, a guy that's going to be, uh, you know, upset the entire time he's there, not going to give you the effort you want, you don't feel the loyalty there. So I think yes and all of the above, which uh, uh, you have mentioned, I think that's all part of it. Yes, you could have held him to the contract, but again, maybe part of this was uh, planned, and then again, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just I walk in and uh, he walks in and says, hey, I've been offered the Alabama job. I'm sorry, but I want to leave. I want out of this contract. And, of course, if you're the coach, you say, God darn you, and you get upset about it and so on, but then you say, get out of here. Go ahead and go and take that job. We'll beat you next time we play you. And, you know, I've had coaches do that. Coaches, you know, coaches today, the loyalty in coaches and the loyalty in players, it's a whole different thing. It's it's me and then the program. I hate to say that. It, it's got to that because of dollars and cents. And, and you know, you, you go to a program and you're there one year and all of a sudden you're gone. Or the coach gets fired. Or you take Tommy Robinson and Mike uh, uh, Schumers and these guys that coach at USC. They took a chance. They came in and all of a sudden they're gone. Fortunately, they got relocated. There's other coaches like Baxter and those that haven't got relocated yet. So that's what coaches is all coaching is all about, and you understand it when you're in the field and you work in this area. In the regular industry, no, you'd be blackballed. They'd say, what kind of guy is this? But it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. It just publicized more when you're in the line of sports. So my feeling is uh, I think you probably got a guy from Georgia that's a hell of a coach, and I think he wants to be. At USC, he almost went back, but he decided to be a Trojan. He had second thoughts because you always wonder when you're moving if I'm doing the right thing. And uh, he came. He, he's coached in a great conference where he knows what it takes to win with the defensive line, the type of defensive line and fronts that they coach with down there. He probably has recruiting ties down in the south, southeast, which would be great. And I think he comes with a lot of enthusiasm, and I think he'll be a great coach. So, uh, you know, you got to take it some and you got to lose some of it, but you can't be bitter about it. You got to move forward. You got to pull your staff together. You got to become one. It's like all five fingers are on a, a one hand and you got the other hand 10. You're going to hire a lot of coaches, new strength and conditioning coaches. You've got to make you all a part of the program. You've got to recruit together. You got to believe together. You got to pray together, cry together. Your wives have got to get along together, too, but the number one thing, off-the-field activities are just as important as on-the-field activities with players and staff members. So it's not easy when you put a staff together, but uh, and especially you bring, you've got to have some type of knowledge of everybody you hire. When I hired any coach, I had some type of knowledge of his background, who he was, what he's bringing to the staff.
staff. And you, you, a lot of you might not believe this. When I interviewed a coach, his wife came too. And I had my wife interview his wife as far as how she felt she was with our wives and the program of it. And she would come home, and I would come home, and, she, and I'd ask her. I'd say, honey, what do you, what do you think? Oh, man, this, this girl is into men, into something that, uh, you know, it's all about her, all about them. I said, really, where'd you get that from? Or she'd come home and say, hey, this, this girl's a cutie. This girl's great. Uh, she's going to really add to our staff. What a great personality and all this and that. She cares about the players, not herself. All she talked about was how great she likes to support her husband. He loves his work. So you got to look and do your homework with all this stuff. And I hope all coaches do what I did. It worked for me. I'm not saying you have to do it this way, but I did it this way, Ryan. Well, that's the way you do it. That's the way you, you got to do it, I guess. And I think USC did what they have to do. I don't think it was a sign of desperation like uh, J.D. was um, talking about there. I, I certainly you try to hire the best guy available. I think they got a good one uh, in Chris Wills. I think they tried to get some some quality coaches in there. Just, uh, you know, there's issues. I mean, replacing a legend's tough. Um, but I, I, I think the way, I think USC fans are going to like the direction they're going. Certainly he has SEC ties. He recruited the, the state of Georgia mostly. Um, so I think you'll see some, uh, some guys from Georgia pop up on USC's radar uh, going forward. So that should be interesting. And, you know, they've got great players out of Georgia. And if he can bring some great players out of Georgia to USC, I think it's great. Because uh, you remember SC recruited well in Georgia at one time. They brought Jones in, the linebacker that couldn't, uh, you know, pass his physical, never did play at USC, but went down back to Georgia and played there and became Southeastern Conference's defensive player of the year and is starting in the NFL along with the other linebacker who had a health issue and is, I think, going to be a doctor or help uh, work as a GA or student aide with the USC Trojan football program. So, you know, if he can bring players from down there and has those ties, it would be great, especially if they're Leonard Williams type, too. <laughs> That's a great area of football. Certainly. Big defensive lineman. You can get them from down there. Um, but one last thing, Coach, before I let you go. Uh, there was a really good piece, I don't know if you got to see it, that, that Bruce Feldman wrote about the NFC championship game and Pete Carroll and all the people kind of cheering for him from his – son who's coaching down in Miami to like Yogi Roth, his former assistant that's in the media now. And, you know, USC fans kind of all over the place, former USC players. It's not just Seattle fans. I mean, he's really kind of kept some of those USC fan that USC fan base and the people that he's built up here uh, at USC uh, kind of followed them up there. And if you look, if you're watching Twitter at all, a lot of USC fan base is really po- rooting for, for Pete Carroll up there. What did, what did you think about his run? You know, taking that Seattle team and, you know, the few years going to the Super Bowl. Well, whenever you can go to the Super Bowl, it's a tremendous accomplishment. You know, there's 32 teams, I think, trying to do that. And not only do you have to be good, you got to be lucky. you got to have all the calls. It's not an easy accomplishment. He went 15-3 and three this year, had a great career. He built up that home field 12th man. That's Pete Carroll. That's all Pete Carroll bringing that, putting the flag up before the game and everybody getting ready. And the fans now are into it to take pride in what they're called and about the 12th fan. Uh, And uh, that's all Pete Carroll, 100% Pete Carroll. Uh, The Trojan family obviously are cheering for him. He's he's taken what he did at USC now to Seattle. He's developed a great traditional type of 
feeling there. The players play with passion. They play very physical. They fly around the field, uh, and they do it. They got a home field advantage, and, and they took advantage of it, and now they're going to New York to play in the Super Bowl. I, I, would, uh, I would say I would salute him to be able to do that because every single team is trying to do what he accomplished, and he did it. So uh, I take my, hats off, my hat off to him, and uh, I salute him for getting there. This will be something he'll never forget, a national championship in college football or couple, and now, and now a Super Bowl opportunity and maybe a Super Bowl championship. So, uh, man, I'll tell you, that, that, that is absolutely fabulous. All right, Coach. Well, great stuff. We appreciate you coming on the show and uh, sharing all your insights. We'll be back again uh, next week. No more secret assignment. We'll be back talking some more USC football. So send in those questions for Coach if you have anything. And uh, thanks again, Coach. Hey, Ryan, thank you very much. And if you have any questions, send them in, and uh, we'll discuss it. And, again, uh, Happy New Year to everyone. I didn't have a chance to tell you that last week because I was gone. And, Ryan, same to you and your family. Thank you very much. Same to you as well, Coach. And everyone else, hey, back in 30 seconds. Talking with USCFootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287, 1-800-888-7287, that's 1-800-888-7287, or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. I have USCfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber joining the show right now. Happy uh, Martin Luther King, Dan. What's going on? Uh, you know, I guess it's uh, the start of the winter workout time and the start of, uh, you know, the real organized recruiting and all the kinds of things that, that put a stamp on it. It's not a, exactly a transition program now. It's now it's, uh, this is Sark's program. And uh, and it's these players' program. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the lesson that these guys learned, I think, in the fall, is it's their team. And uh, while some of the you know seniors to be aren't back, a lot of the guys, the real real serious leaders, the uh, Josh Shaws, the Hayes Pillards, um, they're coming back. And uh, I think they're going to keep it as their team. And they're going to share, you know, with the coaches and with the fans and with the former players and all of that. But uh, it'll be interesting to see the personality of this team going forward. I think that's something uh, we really want to watch and probably was the hardest thing for them to do last year, last fall, last summer, because uh, it was always Lane Kiffin's team, and he really wasn't going to – allow it kind of to be the players or even his own assistant coaches. That was just one of those, you know, issues that Lane, that Lane had in terms of, you know, how he dealt with uh, running USC football. So uh, how that plays out, you know, down the road, I think is really going to be interesting. I think we're going to try to watch that as, uh, as closely as we can. 
You mentioned the transition, and and I think there's been a lot of uncertainty. We've seen it on the peristyle. People kind of getting upset. They weren't sure who this coach was going to be, the defensive line coach. There was a lot of drama there. We kind of addressed that a little bit in the war room. Uh, But it seems like, like you mentioned, things are a little more settled now with the the five early enrollees. We knew the four high school kids were in. We've seen uh, Claude Palin uh, tweet, USC, USC. looks like he's at least on campus now, so probably secure that they got the five early enrollees that they were looking at. And there was, you know, 14 guys left in the class. But more importantly, it seems like on the coaching side, with the 49ers losing, I guess we'll now find out if the, the entire coaching staff will, will be on campus here really soon. Yeah, uh, and probably, if you had to say, who's the most important guy? I think Tim Drevno is. I mean, I think that's the, that's the area that probably uh, neglected maybe more than any needed more development, probably needed more time than, than Mike Summers had last year uh, with his style. And uh, the, the ability that they really didn't have the ability to, to kind of blend what they were going to do on offense to take advantage of, of the strengths of the offensive linemen. They uh, made a course correction after the first five games, and it became simpler, and it became uh, – uh, not so much where you have to think, think, think uh, before every play, and you got a chance to you know make plays. And uh, there were fewer mistakes, there were fewer whiffs, that kind of thing, fewer penalties. But uh, it'll be interesting to see with the change in you know offensive philosophy in terms of you know going up tempo. They're really going to run mostly the same plays, and and from a lot of the same formations with the same uh, position groups. It's just they're going to run more of them, and uh, I think uh, I think that'll help the offensive line. But they've got a chance. I guess the big story there is who comes back, uh, who who gets back. You know what happens with with Jordan Simmons? What happens with Zach Banner? Uh, does Nathan Gertler kind of you know solidify his role as a you know, pretty much a starter? Uh, one would think he's going to get scholarship and uh, get a chance to play a, a couple of spots so uh how do they handle center i think is the is the big question is is that khalil uh khalil rogers uh i don't think we i don't think we know i don't think they i mean let's face it they're not sure what position hayes pillard's going to play next year so uh knowing what center they're going to end up with uh i think is a, is a stretch but there's a the potential i think there to 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 be pretty decently athletic and uh, big and strong. Uh, they could start four guys 6'6 six, six or better in the offensive line, and uh, three of whom would have had extensive starting experience, a fourth who had been a starter. So uh, uh, I don't you know, think that they're it's so far removed that, uh, that that could be uh, a position of strength as it has to be, but if it is, Changes everything. Uh, so getting Tim Drevo in here, great. Yeah, certainly big. And, you know, we've also found out about the defensive line coach kind of being solidified. I know there was a lot of uh, uh, questions and, um, you know, this guy's going to come and he's not going to come. And it's You know, we went through six different guys, I think, in the in the war room. You, how do you like the way USC kind of settled that for a defensive line coach? You know, I think they got to the best place. Uh, if you weren't going to have a, a holdover, situation there um the one they started with uh with uh, you know coach o then uh 
how can you not be impressed with, uh, you know, with a guy who has been a, a defensive coordinator in the Southeastern Conference with really some success at Mississippi State where they didn't overwhelm whelm you with, with their talent, hired away you know, by Georgia, a successful program with a lot of money uh, to try to you know, make things uh, get better at Georgia, and then to be able to hire him, they wanted to keep him, and to be able to hire him, his, uh, he really doesn't have any West Coast experience. Uh, so I mean, he, he went, I guess Colorado is the farthest west that Chris Wilson has been. But uh, for him to come in and, you know, and say, in effect, what it says is uh, how good he thinks, I think without a doubt, how good he thinks this uh, UFC defensive line that he's going to be coaching can be next year. Uh, and he can have, a, you know, real impact in, uh, in year one. And that's the kind of thing I think that brings a guy from the, uh, from the Southeastern Conference for a pretty good job uh, to, uh, you know, to the West Coast and, and USC for his first time out here. So uh, I think it's a really good hire. I mean, I just like, I like everything about him from, from everything you're hearing from people down there, the way he recruits and uh, just, you know, that they were, that was a, Georgia was a team that I guess the last couple of years has had a lot of injuries and really had to struggle. But, uh, but the fans and, you know, everybody down there was awfully impressed with, uh, with the way he coached them up. And they played the run really well. And that's usually a pretty good thing in the Southeastern Conference if you can play the run really well despite, uh, despite their injuries. Um, all right, we have a, a kind of hypothetical, well, not a hypothetical, but like a kind of, uh, it's almost like an algebra problem here with uh, MACD in Vancouver, British Columbia. So I'm going to try to read it slow, and uh, hopefully everyone can follow along, especially you, Dan. Uh, but he, this is what uh, MACD, we love the international questions, by the way, so thanks for that. He said, okay, school A, uh, school, oh, school with Coach A, from 2002 to 2008, the football team won 30% of their games and 24% in conference. And then from 2009 to 2013, the team went up to 55% overall and 53% in conference. And during those five years, the team defeated 15 opponents with winning records and seven teams who were ranked at the time. All right, so if you get that. Then coach for the other school, Coach B, from 2002 to 2010, the football team won 31% of their games and 20% in conference. Then from 2011 to 13. The team won 62% overall and 46% in conference. And during those years, the team defeated four opponents with winning records and one who was ranked at the time. So who are we? And you can guess for school A and school B. Who do you think those guys were? <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of, that's uh, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, school, a, I mean, school A sounds like uh, if we're considering we're getting it from Vancouver, British Columbia, not Vancouver, Washington, Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah. Okay, so uh, it sounded like, you know, Washington. Yes, it actually, Steve Sarkeesian in Washington. So it went from, okay. from you, know, you know, well, he wasn't there the whole time, obviously, but right. from they're winning 30%, 24% in conference, and then they bumped it up to, you know, 50%, 53 in the last uh, five years there. And then School B, it's actually Vanderbilt and James Franklin. So he was kind of, I think he was kind of, he's like, there's no endorsement of Sarkeesian, but why is there such a difference of the narrative between those two? So he's saying that, that Sarkeesian actually turned things around, you know, more at Washington 
than James Franklin did at Vanderbilt. Obviously, a lot of people wanted to hire James Franklin over Steve Sarkeesian. That's kind of why he's bringing that up. Yeah, I, I think it's a good way to look at it. I, I do think, you know, having grown up in the Southeastern Conference, um, it's probably not a good um, analogy between Washington with their tradition and their facilities and their uh, population base and their fan base and all of the stuff that they've got going for them in the Pac-12 and uh, their record of success over the years and Vanderbilt that essentially his, you know, you've got to go back to the twenties. Uh, the last time, you know, Vanderbilt had a good, really solid football program. And it's a small school, small private school, uh, very academic school, kind of a, you know, a mini, uh, a mini Stanford to some extent. Uh, so I'm not sure, but it's, yeah, it's a good way to illustrate it. And I think that's a, you know, kind of a thoughtful thing. I think uh, you know Franklin certainly had a lot of um, a lot of positive pub. There, there was no question about it. He uh, he's got a personality. I think that uh, that you know fed into that. And uh, you were really the classic underdog. It was hard. You could say, oh, uh, Washington was 0 and 12, and blah blah. And he, everybody said, yeah, but look, who was coaching them? Forgot, you know. Of course, they they were. They were uh, you know, coach in, in college football at the time. So um, it's hard to make the case that Washington was really an 0-12 program. But, uh, but Vandy, Vandy was uh, the kind of program, and in the Southeastern Conference at the same time that the Southeastern Conference is dominating college football, he's winning games in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, but uh, but he's, he makes a point. I think uh, Franklin had the benefit of some really uh, positive pub that maybe overstated a little bit uh, the accomplishments uh, there. Although I think, you know, he's, I was a sports editor at the uh, Bucks County Courier Times, and he came out of uh, uh, Neshaminy, Pennsylvania, uh, um, Neshaminy High School, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, kind of a football, a real football place. And uh, so he's a guy going back home to Pennsylvania. So, so I think it's, you know, it's a good hire, but good point. Um, yeah, I mean, interesting. But I, I think the point you bring up is the most important one is I think Washington, I mean, they won a national championship in the 90s. Uh, Vander, Vanderbilt certainly had not. But um, the what I, I and, and if you want to talk about what James Franklin's done, I think one of the, the stats, and I can't remember what his record was, it was something like, 14 and four at some point in the last, you know, 18 games in the SEC, and it was second only to uh, Nick Saban in Alabama. So it, what he's been able to do, the, the games they've won, certainly, I mean, you can get some overrated teams in the SEC, but they beat some some good teams during those years. And I'll be it'll be interesting to you know you're going to follow James Franklin's career, you know, to uh, Happy Valley and and see what goes on there. Well, and the one thing you do notice uh, coming from the SEC to the Pac-12. In the Pac-10 when I when I got here was that um, it wasn't that wacky for a bottom tier team to beat a top tier team like the Utah Stanford game last year that kind of uh, Washington State USC those games did not happen in the Southeastern Conference the lower tier teams if you were you know you were in Kentucky or uh, following Vandy or whatever those teams just didn't beat the top half they didn't they didn't think they could. They didn't. They didn't try to do anything differently. They didn't throw the ball well enough. Very often, uh, they didn't throw it well enough. They didn't uh, do uh, 
any of the kinds of things you have to do to upset uh, people. Whereas in the uh, in the Pac-12, it, it, for uh, an underdog to beat somebody, that's not like a a life-changing experience. In the Southeastern Conference, when Vandy would beat Florida or South Carolina or whoever, that would be people would take note of that because that just didn't happen uh, happen as much. Uh, so uh, he got. Got a lot of credit for that, and, and probably rightfully so. Uh, but uh, but it is a, it's two different worlds the way they look at football. And, the, and the, I think the uh, the nine of the ten years when I got here, I look back at the decade before uh, I started doing USC football, and in, uh, in 2000, what was it, 2001, 2002, um, nine different teams had won the Pac-12 in the decade before. Uh, that's unheard of in the SEC. You know, they're not going to, you know, Ole Miss isn't going to win the SEC. Vanderbilt's not going to win it. Kentucky's not going to win it. Heck, Tennessee's not going to win it now, it looks like. Uh, and, and you have your, you know, your teams that, uh, you know, the haves and the have-nots down there. And so he took a have-not and, and, and made it into almost, uh, almost a have. And so uh, he gets credit for that. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think, to be fair, I don't. I don't think when USC kind of shied away from going the James Franklin route, it wasn't about his record or what he turned around there. It seemed to be, if there was any kind of questions with the you know those rape allegations or anything like that, I, I don't think USC wanted to bring in someone that there could be questions there. And then it's interesting that Penn State goes out and hires him when they've had the sanctions kind of a similar, not similar, but I mean, there's some parallels to the situations between the two schools. Yeah, and I guess the question at USC is um, how seriously did they look at, uh, you know, Kevin Sumlin, James Franklin, uh, Charlie Strong? Did they, you know, was that a serious, you know, were they seriously on the radar? Or, you know, had they, as, as some people think, you know, when they, uh, when they made the decision to let Lane go early, did they also pretty much know, I guess you would have to say the decision on Lane probably had certainly been made uh, whether it was going to happen at, you know, after Washington State, after Arizona State, or after, at the end of the year. Had they already thought, you know, we have to have our next coach kind of in line. And, and, and had they looked at uh, a former USC assistant who was doing pretty well in the Pac-12 even then? And was it not one of those things that maybe any, nobody else really could break through? Once, uh, once that happened, uh, that, that that's kind of the way they were leaning, and so that there there really wasn't a place for Chris Peterson or James Franklin or any of those other guys uh, if you already kind of had zeroed in on your on your guy. Um, wanted to uh, bring up uh, basketball because that's been a topic uh, recently, which was kind of a positive one when. Uh, Andy Enfield was hired. hasn't been all that positive since. But here's a voicemail question for you, Dan. We're going to play that for you. Here you go. Uh, this is Richard from Toluca Lake. This is for Dan Weber regarding the comments that he made about USC basketball last week. Uh, number one, uh, Enfield should keep his mouth shut until he actually beats UCLA. Number two, you can be the best coach in the world. If you don't have the talent, you're not going to win. Number three, when you shoot 30 to 50% in free throws in all their games this year, you're not going to win. And number four, when you have an athletic director like Pat Hayden at the USC-Arizona game last Sunday who looked completely bored during the entire game, you're not going to win. I appreciate you. Fight on. 
Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah. And <laughs> I, 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 I didn't, and I don't know. I think in some ways it's your job to keep everybody who's at the game uh, really attentive uh, by the way you play. That's been, and I know people say, oh, don't be negative, don't be. I, I think I'm disappointed in that uh, they, you know, they were 9-4. And it, you know they weren't playing a lot of great teams, but they did beat a Xavier team who's playing really well. Now that's my school. Xavier, pretty darn good basketball team, beat the heck out of the University of Cincinnati, and Xavier got off to a great start in the, the Big East. Uh, Dayton, I think Dayton's got a really good basketball. They beat Dayton at Dayton, twelve thousand people. Uh, you just don't do that. Dayton doesn't lose at home. They beat Boston College. I mean, Boston College has won some games uh, in the ACC, and they're not that bad. So those are three wins uh, before conference play that, you know, made made you think, well, they can be, you know, competitive. But uh, getting worse (laughs) every game, giving up 107 points to – UCLA the most in the, what, 239 games that have been played between USC and UCLA. Uh, not being competitive at all. Running an offense, it, it kind of looks like Kevin's at half court. Not being able to, he's got a 7-2 center and a 7-foot center and a 6-10, even if he's only a freshman in Nikola Ivanovic, and yet you can't throw the ball into the post. You can't post up. You can't run anything through the post. I mean, you might say, Oh, Omar can't do this or he can't do that, but he did. He did have 18 points and 12 rebounds in the last game last year in the you know tournament in uh, Las Vegas. So, uh, and it doesn't look at all like the team you saw in the NCAA tournament, Florida Gulf Coast. I mean, they played with excitement and flair, and you know ran the ran the floor and they pressed and they overplayed. And I mean, it doesn't look like what USC is trying to do can possibly give them any wins. Uh, the way, you know, they're playing half court and that two, three zone. I mean, basically they're saying we can't guard you. They can't play the zone either. I mean, you would think if you're going to say, okay, all we can do is play this zone, you really have to play it a whole lot better than they're playing it. They, they're just, they, re, they react slowly. They rotate slowly. Uh, and uh, it looks like, if, if this is a team that clearly can't shoot the ball, you've got to get more runouts. You've got to get more transition. You've got to take, maybe take more chances. I don't know. Uh, I just know this team doesn't look like it's having any fun. doesn't look like it's, it's certainly not getting any better. And, they, and that's scary a little bit if the team hits the middle of the season and starts getting way, way, way worse than, uh, than they were the first part of the year. And worse than they looked, you know, last year. And I know people can say, oh, they're not as good. They don't have any, they have any talent. But Sean Howard started three years in the ACC at Maryland at guard. Uh, Julian Jacobs got a lot of, you know, physical ability. Probably not a, not a point guard at this level uh, right now. Uh, but uh, J.T. Terrell, you know, everybody uh, knows the things he can do. Uh, street shooter. Had some, you know, big time games. Uh, Byron Wesley, the guy who's you know, basically uh, been a starter his three years and uh, a leader, 
and a scorer seems to kind of lost his way. Uh, I, I don't know what, you know, DJ Haley, he's, he's a grad student, seven footer, did play at Virginia Commonwealth, uh, didn't set the world on fire, but he started against USC in the NCAA tournament. So he's not a, not the worst guy in the world to have as a backup, but it just doesn't look like what they're trying to do is, is what it's going to take to get them, you know, moving in the right direction right now in the, you know, in the Pac-12, whether it's just a matter of wait for the two, uh, uh, transfers and the four recruits to come in uh, and, and just, you know, get a big turnover next year, we'll see. Uh, but uh, it is a little discouraging. To, they look a little lethargic. They look a little bit uh, lackadaisical. They've been getting just awful starts in these games. What was it, 17-2 to two at uh, the Colorado? Uh, that's, you know, you just can't, can't play that way. But so... The jury's kind of still out on what exactly is happening with this team. It's not as bad as it looks. How bad it is it playing this way, the way they're trying to play? Uh, I don't think they can be very good because uh, it doesn't look like the way they're trying to play is the way they can play and beat people. The Xavier game, the Dayton game, uh, kind of upbeat. I mean, they were they were running the floor a little bit and scoring, transition and. And I know the difference is those teams, you know, they see you once. And they don't, you know, really try to take away everything that you, you're trying to do from you. Where you get into conference and those teams have really scouted you. They've got all your tendencies. They really know what you can't do. And they're really going to try to force you to do it every single time down the floor. That's tough. So, but. I can't disagree with uh, your observations. Don't, didn't uh, didn't see all the things you saw, but uh, uh, can't disagree. Um, you know, we saw Kevin O'Neill struggle, and now you're seeing Andy Enfield, which should, you know should be a whole different style uh, struggle as well. Is there something different? I mean, we know the USC basketball culture is not uh, you know the best in the country or anything like that. But is it? Is there something that's going to be difficult for Andy Enfield to overcome even when they get some, some more of the players in there just trying to overcome this culture of USC basketball? Yeah, it's, it's something to deal with. I mean, Tim Floyd certainly had it going. If you look at, you know, the guys he's got, look at the NBA. There's some pretty exciting Tim, you know, Tim Floyd products in the NBA, and he had, he had a couple of teams that, you know, had a shot to, to, to go a long way in, in the – in the NCAA tournament, um, but you didn't ever see him, you know, filling, filling Galen. It just maybe for the UCLA game once or so, but uh, it, it just it is a, a cultural thing. I, I will say this: they do look like they've worked at some marketing things, and uh, there were you know a game or two where they had a family family days and Sunday afternoons and what that that looked pretty good. Uh, working on the students, uh, will the students come? If, if you're good, if you're good and you're playing Arizona, Arizona State, the students will come out. But uh, it's got to be, I do think in L.A., I think one of the attractions about Andy was his style, and a, you know, full court, open court, run, gun, have fun, and, and you're not seeing any of that. And that's, uh, that's probably L.A. basketball. I think the Lakers set that tempo, uh, UCLA with, you know, Coach Wooden and, in a four, you know, three-quarter court pressing anyway, and uh, lots of offense and lots of offensive players. Uh, 
Uh, I think that's that's how they. Uh, you look at the Clippers and Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. You got guys that you know that can make plays, and and people you know get excited about that. And uh, I don't know that the style that they're playing right now. Not only is it not not getting them any wins, it's uh, not the kind of thing that people are excited about, and uh, doesn't look like the players are either. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I think uh, <laughs> it's just so hard to you know to talk about overcoming that culture with that with this kind of a program, uh, and, and to see it what you thought would happen would be at least there would be a different feel about it, a different tone, a different sense of building, a different sense of urgency and excitement. And that that's missing as badly as it is now that the USC has gotten into conference play. It's kind of you know disappointing and, and a little deflating. And I think it is for the players too. I think when you look at them, I think they thought they were going to, be more competitive. I think after the nine and four preseason with the three good wins, I thought, and 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 the game that they it should have been ten and three because uh, they gave away kind of gave away the Long Beach State game with Wesley and uh, Terrell not essentially neither started and Wesley pretty much didn't contribute at all after missing the bus or whatever. But uh, but that didn't carry over at all into the into the regular season and, and to get blown away by UCLA, you know, to open up. Uh, I don't know. They just don't seem to have, you know, recovered from that. And uh, it's probably if you've got 18 games in the Pac-12 and your first game you get blown out, you know, give up 107 points, a record loss to UCLA, that makes the other 17 pretty tough. And uh, they've proven to be. Uh, they've They've just not been competitive in any of them. All right, Dan, we'll see what goes on going forward if the, the Trojans can win a Pac-12 game. But uh, thanks again for uh, coming yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, at least it focuses you know, on on the fact that just win a game. Yeah. That's, you've got a specific goal in mind now, win a game. Yeah. And uh, don't worry about anything else. What, what does it take? What do you have to do to win a game? We'll see. Yeah, we'll keep following. But uh, thanks again, Dan. Appreciate you uh, okay. coming on. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. And just to let everyone know, we're going to have Gerard Martinez coming up probably on Tuesday for a Trojan Blast recruiting podcast, big recruiting weekend. Uh, last weekend, more coming up. So, you know, it's the, the final few weeks before signing day. So we're going to get Gerard on again and talk to him about what's been going on. But uh, thanks again, Dan. It was good stuff. Thank you very much, Ryan. Enjoyed it. All Bye. right. And everyone else, thanks very much for tuning into the podcast. Remember, Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast tomorrow, and we'll be back with a regular show on Monday. Thank you. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.